0: Hopefully we can uh, just fellowship together. That's one of the best things about being in a, a ministry where you get to travel and speak as you get to meet new friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, and see what the Lord's doing in different parts of the, of the country. And so uh, we're just excited to be here, so grateful, really, for you trusting Stan and trusting us to come, and uh, that's not an easy thing to do, to give up the pulpit uh, to a stranger, but uh, Lord willing, it'll be edifying and encouraging, and hopefully we can... Uh, enjoy the time, uh, the time together. So we're calling this "What Lies Ahead." Basically, I'm just going to try to cram 32 years of studying eschatology and teaching it at the college and seminary levels for 12 years into four sessions. So I'm going to have to talk fast, and you're going to have to listen fast. But I just kind of picked some highlights and some things that I think will, if nothing else, pique your interest. But I also want to make sure that we have some time for questions because I love to interact. I learn. Best that way. People ask questions, things I've never thought about. So, uh, what I'd like to suggest for at least the first three sessions—obviously during the worship time tomorrow—it'll be a little bit different format. But uh, if at any point you up your hand, I don't mind stopping and chasing a few rabbits. Uh, I'll also try to allow some time for questions now and then, and and see kind of what's on your mind or what some of our topics and things we've discussed have uh, have brought to mind in your own minds. Uh, We do have a number of resources related to the end times at the Not By Works tables out there. Uh, So if there's something you'd like to study further, feel free to browse out their DVDs, books, and things like that. And I'll mention some of them uh, throughout uh, our time uh, together. But we're calling this What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. Uh, The book, by the same title, is really sort of the most comprehensive place to go to get all of the material, 16 chapters. Um, charts, diagrams, study questions. It's used as a textbook in a lot of different uh, Bible colleges. Uh, so I'll be bringing that up a lot or maybe referencing a certain page numbers uh, in it. But for our first session, I just want to get you thinking broadly about the whole topic of the end times and ask the question, why is it that so many people today are shunning the topic of the end times? And uh, there is an answer to that, and I'm going to give it to you in just a second. Uh, but everywhere I go, I because I, we don't just do end time stuff. We do discipleship training. We do evangelism. We do all kinds of men's conferences, things like that. And whenever people see some of our materials on that, I, I either get one of two reactions. Often people will be interested and excited and say, "Oh, you know, tell me more." But but just as about as many people will say, "Why, you know, what's the what, what's the point of all that? Who cares about that? Or nobody really understands it. Or uh, the one that I really." It really bothers me the most, and when I hear it, I just want to punch them in the nose, is when they say, well, I just want to talk about practical stuff. I want to study the practical stuff. Well, to me, you can't get any more practical than studying the end of the story. Uh, I mean, we, don't, we, we would never read three-quarters of a novel and, and put it down. We never go to a movie and walk out three-quarters of the way through. We like to know how things end with anything else. But for some reason, people are satisfied when it comes to God's Word not knowing the end. The interesting thing is one-third of the Bible is prophecy. I don't know if you realize that. One-third of the Bible. And half of that has not been fulfilled. Now, if you do the math, that means 16% of our Bible relates to unfulfilled future events that God's told us about. In fact, the very last two, I don't have this on the screen, but the very last two verses in our Bibles, I don't know when the last time you might have looked at those, Is But it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, why would the Lord put that in His Word if it wasn't true, first of all, and if He didn't want us to study it? So what this really tells us is that 16% of the Bible relates to the end times. And so if you're ignoring the study of the end times in your own walk with the Lord... You're basically saying, I'm satisfied studying only 84% of the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe God gave us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word, and He wants us to study all of it. I'm not content to study just 84%. I want to study 100% of God's Word. And not only that, you have to, you have to admit that different topics within the Bible do Carry different interest levels, right? Like, I'm not particularly motivated to read about all the Levitical laws. They're valuable. All scripture is profitable. It's, the Lord uses it. It's part of God's self revelation to mankind. He revealed himself to us over a period of 1,500 years through 40 different human authors in three different languages. When the quill hit the sheepskin, it was God's way of saying, Here I am. Some passages that are a little more interesting than others, let's just be honest. But not only is 16% of the Bible about the end times prophecy, but that's a pretty exciting part of the Bible too, because it reminds us that things are not always going to be the way they are right now. Uh, Things are not always going to be this way. There is a better day coming. Uh, Someday, if you read the the rest of the story, the end of the story, you're going to find out uh, that Christ is going to come back and make all things new. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying. And God has lined it out for us exactly how that's going to happen. And it motivates us uh, today uh, to know more. But I have another reason uh, why I think so many people are shunning the subject of end times prophecy. And that is because it's, it's a prophecy in and of itself. That's the ironic thing. When people tell me they don't want to study the end times, that's actually a fulfillment of what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, when he said, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? See, the Bible tells a story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's a story that starts with creation and then the fall and then redemption. And the the biblical narrative comes full story back to a pre-fall Edenic state of perfection when once again God removes the curse of sin and makes all things new. And so the study of the end times actually doesn't begin in the book of Revelation as we're going to do here tonight, it begins with the book of Genesis. You can't study the end until you understand the beginning and you understand the, the plan that God laid out. And you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you see in, in very rudimentary form God's promise to make all things new and to win this cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And, and then he, he outlined, as we're going to see, kind of makes these promises to Abraham and to David and all through the Old Testament prophets you see this promise of a kingdom then you get to the New Testament the New Testament begins with hey the kingdom of By the time he was writing in the 60s A.D., people were saying, you know, it's been several decades, this promise of the return of the Messiah, where is he? I don't, I'm tired of waiting. I don't think he's coming back at all. And they would even mock and say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. In other words, nothing's changed. You know, Jesus said, look up, be watchful. We get up every day, we look up, watchful, nothing happens. The sun sets on another day and he hadn't come back. And we're still under Roman oppression, we're still facing persecution, things are heating up, Nero's going bananas, not long after Peter wrote, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman general Titus, things were not looking good. And that was nearly 2,000 years ago. And Peter says, people are going to mock the return of of Christ. But then he answers his own question a little bit later in chapter 3, Peter says, but don't worry, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He hasn't forgotten. He, 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 you know, God never looks down from heaven and says, Boy, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> you know, has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? Everything happens right on His timetable. And Peter tells us that He is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when we wonder, Why, Lord, why so long? Why so much suffering? Why not come on back? and uh, and split the eastern sky and 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 move into that 16% that we're so much longing for, the answer is right here. God's waiting for people to come to know Him. And we don't know His timetable, and we're not into setting dates. I, I, if anybody sets a date based on lunar cycles or Shemitahs or any of that other stuff, they're not reading the same Bible that I'm reading uh, because we don't know what God's timetable is. Uh, but notice what He says then a little bit later. He says, nevertheless... Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, the world in which we live today is a world where Satan is the prince. How many of you believe that Satan is trying to take over this world? I mean, if you believe the Bible, that's what it says. He was trying to take over heaven. He got kicked out of heaven. He came to earth. The earth is his domain. 1 John 5 tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. He's the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. Ephesians 6 tells us our struggle is not with flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with Democrats or Republicans or political. Our struggle is spiritual. And Satan, even though he's been dealt the mortal wound, he believes he can win this battle. He doesn't believe the truth of God's word, even though he knows it better than most Christians. He just doesn't believe it. He's still fighting, thinking he's going to win. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Depravity is a degenerative disease. Things don't get better with time, they get worse. And uh, it's not a self correcting disease either. You can't correct depravity on its own. You need the free gift of eternal life given by Jesus. He paid the price, He paid the penalty for sin, defeated death, hell, and the grave when He rose from the dead, and now He's offering freely to all the, the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. But He doesn't force that gift on anyone. Uh, he, he makes it available. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. That's in the book of Revelation as well. Romans 3.24 says we're justified freely by his grace. Uh, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. But you've got to receive the gift. Uh, and so the answer is right there. But Satan doesn't believe it. He's struggling. He thinks he can somehow eke this out. And it's going to get worse and worse until it reaches a climax during that 16% of the Bible that is yet to be fulfilled. And that's what we want to talk about for the next three or four sessions. We want to talk about what lies ahead. And, and not just for information purposes, but because that data from God's Word, which all of God's Word is profitable, will help us live our lives today. See, Paul said, if in this life only I have hope, I am of all men most pitiable. In other words, if you get out of bed every morning and all you can do is hope to have a good life, Find some kind of joy and peace. uh, It's going to be pretty miserable, but if you get out of bed every morning and you know that a better day is coming, you know that you're going to see your loved ones again who know the Lord and died before you. You know that someday the King of Kings is going to sit on the throne, rule in perfect peace and justice with a rod of iron. All the governments are going to be on his shoulders, and he's going to rule and reign the world. Uh, That's something to look forward to. That's that's motivating, right? Uh, So. Peter kind of gives us the answer. Why don't people uh, study the end times? Well, that's prophetic. People are losing interest. Satan's blinding men's hearts to the gospel, and he's blinding men's hearts to the reality of Christ's return. Um, So let's kind of introduce the subject of some of these things by throwing some topics up on the screen. How much do you know about end times prophecies? Have you thought about things like the rapture and the second coming and the Antichrist or the false prophet? Who are the two witnesses? What are the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments? What about Armageddon? I've heard about it, but where does it fit into things? What about the abomination of desolation? Or what is the millennium? Who goes before the great white throne judgment? And who's sitting on the great white throne judgment? Speaking of judgments, what's the Bema judgment? What about the lake of fire? Who are the 144,000 that the Bible clearly talks about playing a role in the end times? What is the marriage of the Lamb? Who's the beast from the sea? What about the 70th week of Daniel? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. One of the most profound prophecies in all of Scripture, really the key to understanding the end times and showing us how God's Word is fulfilled precisely to the day. It's amazing. In fact, it's so striking that most liberal scholars don't even believe Daniel is part of the Bible. They just discard it because it's so dead-on accurate to the day. Um, What about the new heavens? and the new earth. What role does Babylon play? And speaking of Babylon, what role does the United States play? Uh, And what about the temple? You know, the temple, Herod's temple was destroyed, but we know, according to Scripture, Christ is going to come back and sit on the throne and rule in a physical brick-and-mortar temple. Ezekiel spends nine chapters describing it in magnificent detail. Those chapters aren't just in there for no reason. That's a beautiful description of the future temple when Christ takes the throne. Uh, What about it? Where is it? And how does that how does it relate to end times prophecy? So why should we study the end times of prophecy? Well, I already mentioned that uh, the book of Revelation has a lot to say at the very end in chapter 22 about it. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, again, chapter 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or sorrow or crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. If you spend your time obsessing about what the Bible calls the former things, boy, you're missing out on a lot of blessings, missing out on a lot of blessings. Behold, I make all things new. These things are faithful or true and faithful. And again, at the end, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, quickly there in Greek doesn't mean in short order. It means rapidly, like when it happens, it will happen. And later on in, in the book of uh uh, First Thessalonians and First Corinthians, we find out exactly the details of how that's going to happen. The next great prophetic event, to which the world looks forward, is the rapture, and it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye, literally the blink of an eye, quickly. Uh, in our book, What Lies Ahead, I've got an appendix at the back that's called Sequential Order of End Times Events, in which I outline, uh, in order, the next big events. You can't—I didn't put everything in there, but the major events a lot of what we put on the screen just a moment ago. Well, what do you think is number one in that sequential order? The rapture. There's nothing that has to happen before the rapture for it to happen. That's the doctrine of imminency. Uh, We have a DVD on the doctrine of imminency. It talks about that biblical doctrine. It means it could happen at any time. It could have happened yesterday. It could have happened 100 years ago. It could have happened in the Middle Ages. It could have happened in Paul's day. There's nothing prophetically that has to occur before the rapture. If there were, then that would destroy the doctrine of imminency. Um, And uh, so we look for the rapture, and it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. But there are several reasons uh, why we should study Bible prophecy. I've already mentioned that it tells us the end of the story. Also, it's profitable like all of Scripture. Again, uh, I call those that shun Bible prophecy the 84% club. Uh, If you go to our website, which is Just a chock full of great resources videos, podcasts, audio, notes, all kinds of uh, blogs and articles. But I did a radio interview about two weeks ago and we called it the 84% Club. It was with, uh, on Stand Up for the Truth, David Fiorazzo. Uh, And uh, the 84% Club is just those churches that are content to study only 84% of the Bible. Um, But Paul tells us all Scripture is uh, profitable. And then it gives us hope. For the future. As I mentioned, uh, Paul talks a lot about that future kingdom and that future hope. For example, he said in Romans 8 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. A lot of people are like those people in Peter's day. They're just throwing up their hands, saying, ah, this is rubbish. He's never going to come back. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's the same thing every day. He's not coming back. And uh, Paul says, no, no. The fact that we can trust God's promises. Uh, that you know of that one-third of the bible that's prophetic one-sixth of it's already been fulfilled exactly like god said it would be jesus was literally born of a virgin isaiah seven fourteen. jesus was literally born in bethlehem micah 5 2 jesus literally uh was cut off as daniel nine twenty seven tells us um you know so the suffering servant p- passages in isaiah the, the uh, uh so much of the, the first advent of christ that we read about all of it, was fulfilled exactly like he said he would. So why suddenly would we assume that the rest of the prophecies are not going to be fulfilled? We're going to talk about uh, why people uh, think that. So it gives us hope uh, for the future. Uh, Paul uh, said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, in fact, every one of the major rapture passages in Scripture always ends with a note of comfort, a note of exhortation. Comfort one another with these words, right? It's not comforting to... To think this is the best it gets, you know this kingdom now theology that just you know, perhaps put on a happy face and smile and enjoy it because this is it your best life now. No, this isn't it. We have a job to do as we're going to talk about that God has us here for a reason. We've already alluded to that in Second Peter three nine. The church is here for a reason. There are multiple purposes of the church that we're here to fulfill the Great Commission until the 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 eastern sky splits. But this isn't the end all be all. Of God's plan so the church is not the end-all be-all of God's plan God has a kingdom coming some day uh, and then of course uh, Titus 2 13 passage many of you probably know the looking for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ it's amazing to me how over time over the centuries passages like these begin to be pushed further and further to the background in Christians daily walk uh, in the early days after the crucifixion and resurrection, these the church was gathering around the central theme of the return of Christ. It was their blessed hope. That's why you see it mentioned in every book of the New Testament. But suddenly, over time, uh, hope begins to wane, and and then you know Augustine comes along and uh, and and writes his book City of God, and begins to convince people that the Bible was just a big allegory, basically, and that all of these prophetic passages were were not meant to be fulfilled literally and people begin to adopt that approach and then we get into the middle ages where you couldn't even read a bible without being burned at the stake and so it you know the devil has done a good job of sort of trying to keep god's plan hidden from people uh, but the word of god is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword and it it goes uh it goes forth and so then it also provides motivation for the present um you know One of the last things we read about in Scripture is, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me, Jesus said, to give to everyone according to His work. Now, one of the chapters in What Lies Ahead deals with the doctrine of rewards. We know this can't be talking about heaven because the Bible is uh, quite clear that you don't get heaven based on your works. In fact, that's the theme verse of our ministry for 22 years has been Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy. He saved us. Whatever is of grace is not of works. Whatever is of works is not of grace, Paul tells us. So when Jesus said, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about our rewards. And if you go to Luke chapter 19, uh, you'll find that uh, Jesus tells a parable. And it's a fascinating parable. I don't have it on the screen, but it just popped into my mind. Uh, Let me put put it in historical context. So It's the night before the triumphal entry, the last week of Christ's life on earth. And he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem with his disciples. And Luke tells us, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, that because they were near Jerusalem and it was Passover, they thought the kingdom was about to appear immediately. In other words, they thought Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, throw off the shackles of Rome, ascend to the throne in Herod's temple, and rule the world, just like the prophets of old said he would. And, and and Luke tells us because that's what they were thinking, Jesus told them this parable. Well, what was the parable? It's what we commonly call the parable of the minas. I call it the parable of delay because in the story, Jesus says, look, a king is going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom, and he's going to come back after a long journey. But while he's gone, I want you to be busy doing the master's business. I'm going to give you a job to do. And in the parable of the minas, he gives each one of the servants the same thing, one mina, completely different parable from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, which has nothing to do with the church. It's about Israel. But this one is about the church, even though the church hadn't even been formed yet. Jesus is alluding to what's happening because the disciples thought the kingdom was going to happen immediately, even though he had told them time and again that that he must suffer before he could take the crown. The cross comes before the crown, right? tragedy before triumph. He told them that again and again, especially in the latter parts of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. But they just didn't get it. They were hearing what they wanted to hear and seeing what they wanted to see. So he tells them this parable to kind of get them ready that what you think is about to happen is not exactly how it's going to go down. Yeah, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem, and, and sure, there's going to be a splattering of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But within days, those cries would turn to crucify him, crucify him. And the national leaders in Israel were going to crown him with thorns, not a king's crown. And so he's trying to get them to understand that in due time it's going to come, but it's not going to come this week. <laughs> and so he tells them that parable, and he gives us a job to do. So we have an important role to play, and, and again, the whole counsel of God tells us how it all fits together, where the church fits in God's plan of the ages. But the church is not the end-all, be-all. Um, a better day is coming, and, um, and it's going to start with, uh, with the rapture. So it definitely provides motivation uh, for uh, the present, and it puts life in perspective. Again, you know, as Paul said, if in this life only I have hope, I have of all men most pitiable, he also put it this way, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And watch this, when Christ who is our life appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. You See how Paul is relating our current life and the perspective that we have with eschatology, the end times? See, when you trusted Christ, and I don't know everybody here, so I'm going to assume for the moment that everybody here knows the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, that's step number one. Um, You need to To make sure you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. But for those who know the Lord, um, the minute we trusted Christ, we became citizens of heaven. In fact, you get eternal life the moment you believe. A lot of people conceptually think you get eternal life when you die. No, no, you get eternal life when you believe the gospel. And it just so happens that the first so many years of that are lived out in this old sin-stricken body that's deteriorating with flesh and bone, and then the vast majority of it in perpetuity will be in, in the eternal state. But eternal life begins the moment you trust Christ. And therefore, Paul can say, look, your life is hidden with God in Christ, and he's right there at the right hand of God waiting to come back and establish his kingdom and when he does, by the way, we'll be riding with him on white horses, Revelation 19. We'll be coming back with him to help rule and reign in uh, in the kingdom. In fact, flip over to, I don't have this on the screen either, but do you guys have Bibles? Do you believe in the Bible here? You do? Good. Um, I mean, I was glad I found one to prop up my projector, but I've been in some churches that don't have them, so uh, that's, I knew this church did uh, after talking to Harrison. Praise God. So in Hebrews chapter 2... I'm preaching through Hebrews right now, and it's so timely because the, the the context of Hebrews, get this, it's a group of Christians who were facing in, in, in rapidly changing geopolitical times and facing unprecedented persecution for the cause of Christ. Sound familiar? Well, that's what they were facing. Late 60s, say 67 to 69 A.D., These were Jews who had gotten saved. Many of them had gotten saved on the day of Pentecost and had been saved for 30 years, three decades. Not all of them, but many of them. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to this group of believers who, because of the persecution under Nero, were thinking about abandoning the way, Christianity, and reverting back to Judaism. Because Judaism still was kind of a safe haven. You know, the Jews were, were not considered to be the ones that were upsetting the pox romana the, the the causing all of this unrest and problems in the roman world and so but if you were a christian you know you 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 were oftentimes burned at the stake or your families were persecuted so you know we don't want to judge them too harshly because who among us might you know who, who's to say what we would do right um, but hopefully we would remain steadfast and continue following the lord whatever the cost that's the high cost of discipleship um, but you get to chapter 2, and as he's making his case through the 13 chapters, he's constantly reminding them that the Jesus who saved them is far superior to, to anything and everything that Judaism had to offer. Indeed, Judaism was the shadow, Jesus is the substance, right? So, so don't, so, so hit your wagon to him. stick with Jesus, that's basically what he's saying. And notice what he says in chapter 2, uh, verse 5. People often skip over this verse. In the immediate context, he's he's making it clear that Jesus is far superior to angels because in that culture they were starting to worship angels to try to find some relief. But he says, God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Notice that. God has not put the world to come of which we speak. The whole book of Hebrews is about the world to come. He's motivating them to endure suffering and endure trials in light of the world to come. Because these believers were, like so many before them, and even before the church, Old Testament saints, were, were, were wondering where is the relief? Where is this kingdom? When, Lord? Why not now, Lord? Why are we waiting so long? And he's saying, I know it's tough, but a better day is coming. And then he talks about Christ's return and how they're going to reign with him and behold special positions of service in the kingdom. So studying Bible prophecy helps give us perspective. It reminds us what life is really all about. It's not about what we can see and feel and touch, right? I was talking to somebody just this week who was struggling because they had had their journey in life had brought them through a season when they were younger where they faced multiple deaths where a mom died an uncle died a, another uncle died a cousin died in tragic accidents all within a short period of time and it it just rocked their world and they were kind of you know turning their back on the lord because of it and i tried to explain you know death is a reality everybody if the lord tarries is coming every one of us is going to die you know uh, but if you have a heavenly perspective it It doesn't matter our li do you realize our life on earth is just a speck, not even a speck on the timeline of eternity, <laughs> and uh most people have become conditioned uh to think of life in terms of the now, you know uh get all you can, can all you get, you know uh, work hard, make a good living, um and they just they they've lost the perspective and studying the end times reminds us about something that is so beautiful and so real, and it's going to be so tangible. Do you realize when Christ comes back and Satan is cast into prison for a thousand years during the the millennial phase of the eternal kingdom on the old earth, that the curse of sin is going to be largely held in check? Um, You will see longevity of life returning, Isaiah 65. The Bible tells us a baby might a person might die at the age of 100 and they'll be considered a baby. Right? Again, depravity is a degenerative disease, but when Christ comes back and makes all things new, we're going to begin to see that shift back again. Why do you think they lived eight 900 years old in the early days of creation? The curse of sin hadn't taken its toll, right? Um, and But that, that's another uh, reason we know we can reject Darwinian uh, eugenics uh, teaching uh, which says that things get better and better and better, survival of the fittest. Uh, no, they don't. They get worse and worse and worse, you know. People go, you know, well, people, some of life's greatest puzzles and mysteries aren't puzzles and mysteries at all, if you understand the Bible, you know. How'd they build the pyramids? Well, I don't know. They were nine feet tall. They picked them up, carried them over there, and stacked them on one another like they were playing with chopsticks because they could do that back then. So they were larger and stronger and better, but sin takes its toll. But When Christ comes back, you know, grapes are going to be the size of basketballs once again. There won't be any thorns on rose bushes. There won't be any hurricanes or floods or tornadoes like we've had around here recently. People will live longer, and it's going to gradually get better until ultimately after that thousand years. And I don't know that we'll have time to get into it this weekend. Maybe it'll come up in a Q&A but after that 1,000-year period of time on the old earth, then the Bible says God's going to destroy the old heaven and old earth. You can't put a Band-Aid on sin. You can't renovate the curse of sin. It's got to be destroyed, recreated in sinless perfection, and then time shall be no more. Uh, so that's uh, that's some of the reasons to, under, to study Bible prophecy. Now let's take a, a quick look here at the big picture and sort of uh, from there zoom in back to Genesis, book of Genesis, and kind of see how God's plan uh, begins to unfold. Um, again, you've got to understand the end, you've got to start at the beginning. So if you look at God's plan of the ages, uh, the, the earth is roughly 6,000 years old at this point, if you believe the Bible. Uh, by the way, if you don't believe the first five words of the Bible, you're probably not going to believe much else in it. Uh, in the beginning, God created. and uh, And so, Uh, Over the ages, God has, uh, we've seen major shifts in the way God interacted with man. I don't think we get any arguments to admit that God interacted with Adam and Eve differently than we do today. Um, And then uh, after the fall, uh, you saw things shift again. And then with Noah and, of course, the flood, uh, he instituted human government after the flood. And then you've got the age of promise when God made his unconditional covenant to Abraham that we're going to talk about tonight. And then, of course, he gave the law to Moses, and and then at that point again, the way man interacted with God shifted, and it went through these laws and regulations. These are not different ways of salvation. Everybody from Adam forward is saved the same way from the penalty of sin, and that is by grace through faith. Uh, Only one way to salvation: by grace through faith. But the interaction and the sort of the rules for living and how we did life changed, and they certainly changed again in the Church Age. You know, there are a lot of unique blessings that we have today, that Old Testament believers didn't have, like the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what that means, identifying us with Christ, baptizing us into the body of Christ and being in Christ positionally, right? Um, So, uh, you know, the, the new and living way opened up for us by the blood of Christ, the veil rent in two so that we can go boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. So a lot of things are different. But ultimately, and so that's the age we're living in right now, is the church age. Uh, Then at the end of the church age, we're going to be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, a period of time that the Bible refers to variously as the tribulation, the great tribulation, the overflowing scourge, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, again, the day of the Lord's wrath, and so forth. Um, And then it'll shift into the kingdom. So um, if you look at... uh, Just kind of an overview of God's plan of the ages. This is obviously not drawn to scale, but we're living in what the Bible calls the last days. It's important to understand biblical terminology. The last days is the present age. Why is it the last days? Well, again, if you look at God's panoramic view of history, the only age left to come is the kingdom, right? Not like there's another 15 ages between us and the kingdom. There's one. So these are the last days. That's what the Bible uh, calls them. Uh, The end times is everything starting with the rapture and going until the new heavens and the new earth. That's 16% of the Bible that awaits future fulfillment. Uh, So we're living in these last days waiting uh, for these final 16% of the the Bible to come to fruition. It motivates us. It does, there's reasons to study it like we've just uh, talked about. But if you look at God's plan of the ages, His plan to inaugurate the kingdom, if we were to kind of draw a circle and call this God's plan everything is uh, you know kind of within God's plan of the ages well it started with creation of the world and the creation of the nations after the flood the creation of Israel with uh, uh, Jacob uh, the creation of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 but because of the curse of sin and the fall of man God's plan also involves redemption And it works in reverse order as He tries to make, uh, ultimately makes all things new. It begins with the rapture of the church, followed by the restoration of Israel into the land, the retribution of the nations, and then ultimately the redemption of all creation with the new heavens and the new earth. But along the way, God is doing a lot in this world. Certainly, He has a plan for the salvation of individual men. That's a part of His plan. But we need to understand that that's not the sum total of God's plan. And a lot of people from different theological perspectives that don't understand the Bible and its literal, grammatical, historical approach—the way words are intended to be meant—they su- they sum everything up into it's all about individual salvation. What they're missing is that God is the eternal sovereign Creator. He has a plan, and if He had wanted to to do just what He warned Adam and Eve to do, you know, against in the garden, and that is allow us to receive our just punishment for eating the apple proverbially speaking he could have done that Uh, so the the god's plan for the individual salvation of man is part of it but it's not the end all be all okay god also has a plan for israel a a plan for the nation of israel he's not through with israel Uh, god has a plan for the church he's got a plan for angels he's got a plan for demons we could we could look at all kinds of He's got a plan for creation right as i talked about he's going to remove the curse of sin from creation when he makes all things new so he's doing a lot along the way in his plan that's going to come full circle but it's all about ushering in the long-awaited kingdom and again we we don't have the mind of god romans 11 tells us you know we who can be his counselor right we don't know what god's why he's doing it this way i mean i often think well why wouldn't he just you know Solve the problem of sin right away, redeem uh, mankind, and then go right into the kingdom. Why these six thousand years? Well, God has a plan. Uh, God has a plan. So, what we're going to talk about uh, after the break is God's kingdom promise, and I just want to allude to it. You know, in the in the next five minutes before we break, and kind of whet your appetites a little bit about how immediately after the fall. God is already showing how He's going to win this battle. So let me set the stage for you again, and you know all of this, but you know, Satan, Lucifer, rebelled against God in heaven. He was cast out of heaven after trying to take over and usurp God's authority. One-third of the angels fell with him. Those are what we now call demons. And in my Spirit of the Antichrist, the DVD, which I'll mention uh, we have a whole one of the videos in there is all about angels and demons and how they are working uh, in, in this uh, uh, cosmic struggle. So they fall to the earth. Satan says, I can't have heaven, I'll take earth. So what does he do? He, in the form of a serpent, he approaches Eve and tempts Eve. And Eve uh, did exactly what God warned Adam and Eve not to do. Adam and Eve both did. Remember, God said, there, you can eat anything you want from this whole garden. It's yours, but please don't eat from that one tree because in the day that you eat, you'll surely die. Now, that wasn't God in some kind of a weird, cruel way dangling a carrot. God loved His highest pinnacle of creation, mankind, the only part of creation that was made in the image of God, so much that He wanted to protect us. So in love, He says, don't eat of it. What did we do? We marched right over and took a great big bite, and at that moment, God uh, could have, I suppose, uh, hypothetically, he could have said, oh, "No big deal. No, don't worry. Everybody makes mistakes. Forget what I said about that death thing. Just go on about your way." He could have winked and nodded at sin. But if he had done that, what kind of God would he be? What kind of God would we serve? We would serve a God who's fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy. You can never believe anything he says. No, God is just, and. So we brought this predicament on ourselves and the curse of sin came upon us and we have to die. The penalty for sin is death. But God then took the extraordinary step because not only is He just, He's also gracious and loving and merciful and He solved our predicament. He sent His eternal Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to earth to take on human flesh so that the penalty could be paid. Sin demands a payment. Blood had to be shed. That's the reason... You go all the way back to Genesis 2 and you see the confrontation between Adam and Eve. And what does God do? He creates a, they, they were naked, they knew they were naked for the first time in their shame and they, God created a covering for them. Do you ever stop to think about how that happened? There was no death in the garden prior to sin, right? So He had to kill these animals. He had to shed blood to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. Then you read on, we're going to, look at that after the break uh, with uh, when God uh, talks to the serpent but then you go into the story of Cain and Abel what happens Um, you know Abel's sacrifice is acceptable we read about this in Hebrews why because it was shed blood Uh, Cain just took a few of few ears of corn and some produce and said okay here you go Lord And, and God didn't that that wasn't the proper sacrifice right Without the shedding of blood, there can be no payment for sin. Sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. And so somebody had to die. And so God, and by the way, as much as I like you or you like me or you like your friend or your relative or your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband or your mom or your dad, you cannot pay their penalty for sin because you've got enough sin on your shoulder already. There's no room for it. The only one who could pay the penalty for sin is someone who had no sin, and that's Jesus Christ. So he came, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, tempted in every way just as we are, never sinned, and yet walked up that Via Dolorosa, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, paid the price once for all, defeating death, hell, and the grave, satisfying God's wrath, propitiation, and then he offers freely to all the gift. Now, his death did not save everyone in the world. That would be universalism because in the same way that God didn't force Adam and Eve to sin, He doesn't force Adam and Eve to accept the, re- the remedy. He doesn't ex- force us to accept the remedy. Forced love is no love at all, right? You have a choice. You had a choice to sin. Adam and Eve did. We sinned with them. And now sin is in the blood, Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, by one man sinned into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. You don't become a sinner when you sin, you sin because you're a sinner. <laughs> you know, you're born in sin. David said, in sin my mother conceived me, right? So you're born with a dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. And so you have, you have a problem, and you need redemption. But just as, you know, Adam and Eve had free choice whether to obey God or not, they have free choice whether to receive the free gift. And whoever will, if anybody dies and spends eternity in a literal place of torment called hell, they don't have anybody to blame but themselves. God has done everything He possibly can. He paid the price. He made the offer. Whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life freely, all you have to do is receive the gift. That's it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And if somebody dies and enters a Christless eternity, I mean, that's tragic. That's tragic. But that's not on God. God a just God could have cast everybody into hell. And a loving God makes it possible for you not to go to hell. But the choice is yours, right? And so as we think about God's kingdom, all of that is God's, the inklings, the, the seed form, literally, as we're going to find out after the break, of God preparing the way to ultimately banish Satan himself and all of his de- demons. Remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, the, uh, the most comprehensive teaching in one single place in all the Bible of a blow-by-blow outline of the end times is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus teaching the night before he was betrayed on Wednesday night, before the upper room, on the Mount of Olives. And what did he say? That the lake of fire, the everlasting fire, was prepared for the devil and his angels, his demons. So someday... This old enemy, the devil, Satan, the serpent, he's going to be cast into that everlasting fire and defeated once and for all. And we saw the beginnings of that in Genesis chapter 3, which we'll look at after the break. Before we break, um, let me just mention a, a few things uh, just in terms of uh, items that we have at the table. One thing I would really like you to do, if you're willing, is we'd like for you to sign up for our newsletter. So we have these little cards. All you got to do is put your email on there, and then we'll take it from there. Uh, we send out a newsletter about three or four times a month it's got uh, a, a new article each time that I've written it's got links to videos and audios and podcasts and things that we've done since the last newsletter. It's just a great way to stay in touch with what the Lord's doing at not by works. Uh, I understand a lot of people get a lot of email maybe that's not for you but if you'd prayerfully consider that we'd love to have you on our mailing list so fill one of these out for us at the table uh, and then uh, just some art some things that are related to Topic: We do have a three-disc DVD set called What Lies Ahead, which touches on some of the stuff that we're talking about tonight. And then I mentioned the book, What Lies Ahead, uh, which uh, if you're more of a reader, that's a great resource. Uh, And then I'll mention these others at our next break. But I do want to mention our latest project, which we just got these uh, produced and in stock two weeks before we left for the conference for this road trip, but this is from last fall. I did an 18-video series that just the Lord really used, and it took off and got traction, and now we've produced it into a DVD. People, a lot of people say, well, why do you do DVDs? Everything's streamable now. Well, it, it may not be streamable for much longer. <laughs> if you don't touch it, you don't own it, and uh, I'm already at two strikes with YouTube. They don't like that I preach the truth. They don't like that I speak about the gender surrender movement and some of the things in this series, and so they are about to banish me. Uh, and there may come a time when Christians, like in many close countries, don't have access to biblical truth online. And if you don't, you're going to want to pull for a DVD off the shelf and pop it in your DVD book. But Anyway, this is uh, over 14 hours of video, 10 discs and 18 videos on Spirit of the Antichrist. And it's a, coming at this cosmic struggle. It's 15 years in the works that I've been writing about this and studying this and kind of put it all together into this set. But it's talking about this struggle between Satan and his angels and God on earth as it's happening right now before our eyes. So some of the topics in here would include things like uh, the Luciferian conspiracy diagram and explained uh, Operation Mockingbird, the false left-right paradigm, fake news, censorship, uh, fake elections. I was talking about Dominion and Chinese-owned voting tabulation machines 15 years ago. I've been actually disinvited from conferences because I dared to point out that elections were rigged. And if you think 2020 was the first rigged election in America, well, I'm glad you've kind of joined the club, but y- you're a little late to the game, okay? 2016 was a rigged election, too, all right? And, and I talk about that and show you the evidence. Um, the rise of persecution, global surveillance, the police state, the CFR, Bilderberg, Bohemian Grove, fake elections, the narcissism epidemic, paranormal activity, there's a rise in paranormal activity as this battle is getting worse and worse and worse and reaching a climax. It's one of the reasons why, as we look at the stage being set, we have to believe that it can't be much longer. Again, not setting a date, we don't know. The Lord knows the timetable. I may grow old and die, and my children may, and my grandchildren may. Um, but if you backed me into a corner and had me speculate, I'd say it can't be much longer. There's just too much happening right before our very eyes. So brand new. and uh, That's the conference I did in Dalton, by the way, was Spirit of the Antichrist. Um, so those are at the table. 7.30, perfect timing. So everybody knows what to do, right? Go to the Fellowship Hall, break bread, and, uh, and we'll be back in what, 15? All right, see you in 15 minutes.